Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. This week we find out about animals and plants hunting in strange ways. From houses in Europe going extinct and becoming almost zombie-like to parts of the mouse brain which can be connected to its hunting instinct. Plus, how that plant in your backyard could be signalling could be signalling to warn others of exotic invaders. Hamsters are an adorable and cute pet for many of us across the world. But those of us in Europe, the Crescidas Crescidas hamster is slowly becoming a thing of the past. In fact, it is critically endangered in these regions. And scientists have been at a loss to try and understand what exactly is causing this adorable and cute little creature to disappear from the ecosystem. So, researchers from the University of Strasbourg, led by Mathilde Tisser, have been looking into the adorable cute hamsters, in particular the Crescidas Crescidas, and trying to figure out what in their habitats, and their diet, and the world around them is causing them to disappear. And the result of this study is like something out of a horror movie. In particular, a zombie horror movie. Or maybe Children of the Corn. In any case, it definitely has to do with both children and corn, and even the cannibalization of flesh. Now, we're going to get a bit gritty here, but for many years, scientists have been looking into potential causes of death in the hamsters. Now, people had theorized that maybe it was the impact of the large amounts of used in pesticides in the fields in Europe. Others had theorized that me- mechanized plowing was destroying the underground homes, especially during hibernation in winter. And these things certainly do contribute to the problems, but there was one area that hadn't been really explored in detail, and that is the impact of the diet of these hamsters. And when I say diet, it's not really very difficult to understand. It's just one thing. Corn. Lots and lots of corn. Now, hamsters are basically small rodents that live and forage amongst the environment around them. And unfortunately, in Europe, there's now no longer of lush and varied ecosystems of different types of crops and species for these hamsters to uh, chow down on. Instead, there is a never-ending expanse of semi-sterile and unbroken maize of maize or corn, industrially grown on a large, large scale, covering the hills and countrysides of Europe in certain areas. And this is a real problem. As researchers have discovered that this Singular diet of corn is leading to some very, very alarming behaviours in hamsters. What they are referring to is effectively like dementia, but much, much worse. So what exactly is going on here to these small and adorable little rodents? Well, to start with, as in any good trial, the scientists uh, basically had some control groups, and they fed one of them, you know, uh, for these wild specimens collected from the wild, uh, a diet of wheat and corn with side dishes of clover worms. It's pretty nice. It's a pretty good little varied dial for a hamster. And that's pretty normal. What they then did is compared it to uh, basically just a consistent diet of corn. Now, there's no nutritional value difference between the two menus. The same amounts of food. And, in fact, their same amount of pups on average were born to the litters. So they were able to reproduce just fine. But when it came to survival rates, 
the results were dramatically, dramatically different. Now, about four-fifths of the pups from the normal healthy diet with a variety of wheat and clover and corn managed to make it through the weaning process. But of those that were just fed corn, only 5% survived. 5% is inside. That, that's a very, very low survival rate. A very, very tough indeed. But it wasn't just the fact that they died off that was the problem. It was much, much more alarming to the researchers was how they died. In fact, what ended up happening is that uh, the females at the time stored their small pups with the maize that they were hoarding and then just chowed down through it much like the maize that they wouldn't regularly eat. It's not that they particularly sought out to eat their own children. They just ended up doing it almost accidentally. Their, their mouths of these, of these, also of these mothers were swollen and dark and lots of very thick blood. And all of these symptoms together led to the scientists identifying a substantive vitamin B3 deficiency. In fact, the end result of this looks like something like dementia. And in humans, uh, we end up with a symptom which we call... Uh, pellagra, or the 3D disease, diarrhea, dementia, and dermatitis, such as eczema. We also have an android in dogs. We call it black tongue syndrome. But effectively, when you feed someone just improperly cooked maize, it's, it's, there's a lot of uh, statistical effects shown as well in humans as well as other animals that lead to not great things. We've been studying this disease from mid-18th century to about mid-20th century when we got a handle on it. Now, to then test, their hamsters were offered corn-based diets with B3 added. And that vitamin-rich diet and the corn saved the, the hamsters. They coped just fine, which really isolated the connection between this B3 deficiency and the alarming behavior seen in these hamsters. So what we learn from this, aside from how to help hamsters from becoming cannibals as well as saving a species, is that monocultures in agriculture are really bad for diversity and not just for the plants but also for the animals around them. And that to keep a healthy ecosystem, we need to make sure that there is that variety so that all members of the ecosystem can thrive and survive. This is some great research being done at by Mathilde Tisser and a group at the University of Strasbourg. hamsters in Europe that have become zombies, to small and adorable lab mice in Yale University that have been turned into fearless biting and killing machines. Now, this work has been done not for evil mad scientist reasons or for the endangerment of the animals. It's actually been done to get a better understanding of the predatory instinct neurons and areas of the brain. And this set of researchers from Yale University have been isolating what part of the mouse brain actually leads to the motivation for hunting, pursuing, and chowing down on prey. And they've actually succeeded in being able to selectively activate this little portion of the mouse's brain. Now, there are a set of neurons inside the amygdala, part of the brain, which is the center for emotion and motivation, that causes animals to uh, pursue prey. Now, obviously, this is tied in with hunting instincts, but for more larger purposes as well. 
Now, there's also another set of signals that tell the animal to, well, fire up its jaw and neck muscles to ready to bite, to kill. And researchers, through the use of optogenetics, uh, have been able to isolate exactly these little portions or neurons of the mice's brain. So how does this all work? Well, optogenetics basically means that you can turn a certain set of cells um, and neurons to only fire or activate when light stimulus is applied. So basically, think, think about it another way. They can selectively turn on or off little parts of the brain signal pathways, the neurons, when they shine a light on it. Now, obviously, you have to have access to the brain and be able to see it to shine a light on it in the first place. So it's very, very complex and very, very difficult and only done in a very specific setting. But it does enable you to figure out which part of the brain is responsible for what. And that is really, really important for us to understand not only how a mouse brain works, but how our own brains work. So the researchers, through this optogenetic process, using a small laser, are able to let the mouse sort of just behave normally. But when they turn the laser on, and sort of target that certain segment of the brain, this neuron, they turn into, well, something like out of the walking dead, hunting, biting, pursuing anything in their path, whether that be bottle caps and wooden sticks to crickets or other normal typical prey for a mouse. They'd, not only would they sort of track, hunt and jump on, they'd also, also pour at it and intensively bite on it as if they were trying to capture and kill it. That is particularly interesting because it suggests that there is some sort of almost primordial subcoordinated pathway that connects the sensory input uh, to the movement of the mouth and the jaw in the mouse, which is quite interesting. Another interesting aspect of it is that the mice, once this sort of killer instinct mode was turned on, they didn't turn on the other mouse in the cage with them. They sort of only hunted other objects, but not mice. And uh, it was also interesting that depending on the mouse's level of hunger, it was more aggressive in sort of biting and chowing down on things than if it had been just been fed recently. Which actually does suggest it's not just like the mouse has become super aggressive, it's instead sort of activating more intensely its hunting pathway, which explains a connection to hunger. And interestingly, if they sort of try to control only one of these two areas of neurons, uh, either the hunting instinct or the biting to kill instinct and tried to selectively fire one, not the other. The end result was fascinating. Um, if you only had the hunting instinct on, for example, it would chase down stuff, but it only sort of nibble at it. It wouldn't give it that killing blow bite. Likewise, uh, if you sort of just activated the biting instinct, it would bite things occasionally, but it wouldn't really hunt down and seek out things in its environment to hunt. So both of these go to show that these sort of areas of the brain are intrinsically connected in the mouse. Uh, and all reside in the amygdala. And it's led to a little of a deeper understanding of the hunting behaviours of animals like mice. And this is some great work being done out of Yale University by Associate Professor of Psychiatry, Ivan de Arujo. strange behaviours in hamsters and mice and their prey to, well, something reacting to being bitten and chewed on in a strange 
and unusual way that you wouldn't normally expect. Now we like to imagine that plants are just a thing, a thing that exists there, and yes, okay, they grow, and we watch the seed germinate and grow into a nice tree, or a flower, or a bush. But the changes are so slow and over a long period of time that you don't really think of them as, uh, well, an adaptive and living thing here and now, in the instant. Unless, of course, you're Groot, you don't really expect a tree or a plant to respond when you all brush against it, snap a leaf off, or chow down on it. But some researchers, biology from Radboud University and the University of Nolchalet in Switzerland, have been studying just what happens when a variety of different herbivores chow down on some plants. And the results are very, very interesting. Because it shows that these plants actually respond in a way that is a bit difficult to detect, yes, but is definitely responding to the different types of animals chewing behavior to them. Especially if you're a foreign animal, an animal that's from an exotic locale. The plant in question is the Dutch field mustard, Prosicia rapa, and it's known actually now and proven by these scientists that it emits different odor bouquets, different smells, in response to different types of animals or herbivores chowing down on it, especially if it's a native caterpillar compared to something more exotic from another locale. So what actually happened here is that these scientists exposed the Dutch field mustard plant uh, to 12 different types of herbivores from all over the world. These herbivores included things like, well, some aphids, a small and white and green peach aphid, a slug, um, some cabbage aphids, and different types of small species from all over the world, from far and wide. And what they actually found was that depending on the type of insect that was chowing down, if it was one that the plant was familiar with from its normal environment or something from far, far away, there was a different response, a subtle difference in the chemical composition of the smells emitted by the plant. This is, in fact, a response by the plant to being eaten. And this was detected using a very, very highly tuned gas chromatography equipment uh, with a very highly accurate mass spectrometer from the chemistry department. And this wide team of researchers brought in people with expertise, obviously in chemistry, but also those such as Professor Nicole Van Damme, who is an expert in plant-insect interactions. And that really helped them understand, well, what is the plant's response to the different surroundings that it has? There's also an interesting question. Well, are you a naturalized exotic species? Well, if you've been in the environment long enough, does the plant really have a chance to adapt to it? For example, there are two species of caterpillar, the beet armyworm and the cabbage looper. And both of these are considered exotic. They're not normally from uh, the same place as this Dutch mustard is found. But they've been there for a while, particularly in greenhouses. But they obviously don't survive outside in the winter <laughs> in the Netherlands. The interesting aspect of this is that if you chested it with wild field mustard plants, there was definitely a response of treating it like an exotic or foreign species of buck. If you had it in a greenhouse where the plant had had some exposure to these insects over time, they saw that actually that response disappeared a bit. But definitely, in the wild, the typical response of this plant is to go, oh, this is a weird bug I have never seen before and now it's eating me, ah, and emit a different chemical composition. 
it's not like there was just one single strange uh, help. There's a weird bug eating me chemical that was released. There was actually a variety of different substances. And basically, the, the, the bouquet odors released by the plant help the rest of the plant understand information about the prey, the, the prey that they're being consumed by. And Professor Van Damme points out that this is a spectacular proof of how plants are responding to their environment. Even though they lack eyes, mouths, ears, or a nervous system, they're still capable of determining what is attacking them. And that, they're able to then transmit that information to the other area around them. It's particularly being able to distinguish between it's a bug they're familiar with or something that's completely strange and new. That is really fascinating. It has also a lot of implications for the way in which these plants respond to uh, other things like parasitic wasps or how the own plant's defense mechanism against pest control works. And there's a lot of interesting things to come out of this research, but most importantly, it's good to show that plants aren't as simple or as straightforward as you think they might be. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. From mice neurons turning on a kill switch inside their brain to hamsters in Europe becoming extinct on a diet solely of corn and how plants can be signalling to others about who's attacking them. Our ending theme was composed by Audio and Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.